This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, we revisit our January conversation with Indivisible co-founders Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin to discuss their blueprint for the new democratic trifecta. Indivisible Guide, a practical guide for fixing our democracy, offers lessons from the past and a whole lot of directives for a new and better future. This was recorded live on Saturday, January 23rd. So, as all of you know, the original uh, Indivisible guy was all about resisting the Trump agenda, which uh, Indivisibles across the country did so well that the two authors have now uh, had to write another guide. And uh, this is all about what comes next. It is called Indivisible, a practical guide for fixing our democracy. I know that you're going to have many questions for them, so please enter them into the chat bar. We will get to as many as we can. Our guests don't really need an introduction, but I'm going to give them one anyway. Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin are the co-founders and co-executive directors of Indivisible. We are so glad that they are both here. Hello, friends. How are you both doing? We are excited. I mean, Democratic trifecta and talking with Indivisibles around the country, what could be better? The first weekend of the Biden administration feels pretty good. Yes, it does. And, you know, in fact, I was going to ask you about this right off the bat. Didn't it feel like we didn't get a chance to really celebrate uh, early on, you know, with with Biden's wins being endlessly challenged? We had like a few hours to to celebrate Georgia before the insurrection. Uh, But it's real now. We have the Democratic trifecta. And I'm wondering, by the way, Ezra, I'm, I'm digging the beard, man. We're, uh, we're brothers in facial hair. How are you both thinking about Indivisible's role in all of this in terms of where we're at right now? Well, um, first, I just want to second your point around. Uh, about the beard? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, I want to I want to second your point around needing to take some time to celebrate because we haven't really taken that moment to just look back on how far we've come at every point moment in the last three months, there has been a new challenge on the horizon and people have been, um, you know, we've been hesitant to celebrate and really we all need to, whenever, whenever you find that time, however you find that time, you need to give yourself a moment to just feel the full weight of what we've accomplished and what's possible right now, because it's pretty incredible. We are three days in and, uh, so far president Biden I'm just going to take a second and just enjoy those words, right? President Biden uh, has signed executive orders uh, rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, ending the Muslim ban, bolstering DACA, uh, shutting down the border wall. He put a moratorium on deportations. He's taken a very decisive action on COVID. So much more. Um, it is obviously early, but I'm wondering, what are your assessments right now as, as to, to you know, how the Biden administration is, is getting things kicked off? I would say I've been I've been pleasantly surprised so far. Um, I think that there are a number of signs from the Biden uh, team that they are coming in with a clear-eyed appraisal of um, what's going to be necessary to tackle Trumpism as it's gone into the agencies, um, as they're as they're ex- issuing executive orders. I think they've taken much stronger stances on, for example, clearing out some of these uh, Trumpist holdovers at the NLRB. Um, I think that we're we're seeing some good signs. They're coming out with an ambitious relief package. They're not taking things off the table that they had previously taken off the table around procedural reforms, um, around things like the courts. These are all really good signs, and they leave the door open for this to be a genuinely transformative presidency. Now, of course, 
one element of a genuinely transformative presidency is a major grassroots presence that's actually that's supporting the president as he's taking bold steps and it's urging him to go bigger whenever uh, whenever we're not there. And so that is the role that we have, and that's the role that we have to play right now. I want to have a protracted conversation about that very thing because I think about engagement a lot, uh, particularly uh, in terms of the broadcast that I do. And so I really want your input on that. And of course, we're going to talk about the guide. But before we do, Ezra, I would love to get your thoughts on what is currently happening with the filibuster because it is so central to uh, Indivisible's agenda. So I'll just set the stage here. On Thursday, uh, McConnell tried a procedural move to try to preserve the filibuster as part of what is called an organizing resolution. Uh, This has to do with the transferring of committee leadership in a 50-50 Senate scenario. What's your take on what McConnell's up to right now? Uh, It's exactly what we thought he was going to do, and it's what McConnell has done every uh, time he has had the chance, which is use whatever little ounce of power he has in order to obstruct a progressive agenda and build his own power. And, you know, this was lesson one in the new guide is exactly this. Expect that we are going to see Republican opposition and bad faith negotiation, just basic BS from the Republicans, where they will act as if they are on the team of humanity and rainbows and butterflies. And darn it, those Democrats, if they only listen to us, we we could really find some deals. So he is playing the game that he has played so well for so long. I think it's worth remembering that back in 2009, 2010, when he was last Senate Minority Leader, he said, my top priority is to make Barack Obama a one-term president. Then in the last year or two, he said, I'm going to be the grim reaper of all progressive leg- legislation if I am minority leader and promise to use the filibuster to its full extent. Now, what's surprising right now and encouraging is how unified the Democrats are against that strategy, at least for the time being, and how everybody seems to recognize that the jig is up that Lucy has supposedly the football again, and we're going to go, we're not going to go kicking it. Uh, so what's, what is surprising is McConnell is using the filibuster right now in order to try to protect the filibuster. Now, he is picking this fight right now on this organizing resolution because he knows he is going to have to filibuster D.C. statehood, the For the People Act, relief bills, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, all these popular things he doesn't want to get done. But he doesn't want the argument to be about that popular thing. Instead, he's picking the fight on this boring organizing resolution, which doesn't get as much press, and he thinks it's more favorable ground. But again, the good news is right now Democrats are calling his bluff. Uh, Our new Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, has said, nah, we're not going along with that. We are in the majority. We are going to form the committees. And so there are two paths in front of us right now. Either McConnell backs down entirely. And he says, okay, fine, I won't filibuster the organizing resolution. We can adopt the same type of resolution that has been adopted in the past. Or Democrats amend the filibuster in some way in order to get the organizing resolution through. Those are the two pathways right now because the Democrats have uh, called his bluff. Um, And I got to say, if you had told me even months ago that we would be in this position with the Democrats with 50 votes unified, in defense of keeping the option open to reform the filibuster, I would have said wild success, wild success. Um, and so I'm I'm encouraged by what we're seeing. The fight's not over. We haven't won on the filibuster, but the signs are good right now. 
I will just add one thing on this, which is one of the reasons why we've been stressing this is such an important point for a really long time. And everyone on this call has, you know, been hearing about the filibuster for years is because when it comes to a fight over the filibuster, it does sound dry. It does sound arcane. It does sound like a procedural fight. And yet um, it's been so easy in the past for those fights to determine everything that comes afterwards. And so the fact that there is a constituency that's already arguing that we've got New York indivisibles who are very clear that Schumer should not be backing down on this, that they were actually on a call with him asking questions about this this week. That's a huge deal. Can I just brag, sorry to extend this. Can I just brag on your fellow indivisibles for a sec? Of course. There were more than 400 indivisibles from across the state of New York on a call, on a Zoom call directly with Schumer a week and a half ago. And they asked about DC statehood, HR1, the filibuster and pushed him on it. The fact that we have a grassroots movement that's focused on eliminating the filibuster, I can't tell you how incredible that is and why why we can actually expect that this period could be a period of historic change is because you are all involved, because you're focused on what your members are doing. And you're not taking for granted that just because we have a Democratic trifecta or just because my representative has a D next to their name, they're going to be doing everything right. You know you got to keep watching. And that's why... I've got hope right now, y'all. You are warming my heart, man. Seriously, both of you. I just, I, th- these are the sorts of things that I've been thinking about ever since, you know, we took the trifecta and can we keep this level of people power going? And it's, the, the early signs are very, very good. So let's talk about the new guide that you have written. So uh, I'll just set the stage here on this as well. So like the first one, you start off with things that you both learned from your time on the Hill. Um, in this particular guide, you talk about what we can learn uh, Uh, about the last time that the Democrats had a trifecta back in 2009, and you have four lessons here. And as you said, the first one is to expect the GOP to obstruct, delay, and engage in bad faith BS. And I think, you know, myself included, I think a lot of people look back now and they wonder why Democrats in power even tried to work with Republicans to begin with. What was the thinking back then, as you recall it? Well, I mean, it, you know, Obama campaigned on a message of bipartisanship um, that he could reach across the aisle, that there is no red America, there is no blue America, there's the United States America, inspiring, and also set him up strategically to allow one party to unilaterally sink that strategy and then blame him for the failure. And that's what we saw. We saw the Republicans say, oh, your success is bipartisanship, then we will withhold our support. And by definition, you have failed. And that isn't you know, driven by normal Republican voters on the ground. That's driven by Mitch McConnell. That's driven by, uh, uh, right now, Kevin McCarthy. It's driven by the Republican leaders. There is a disconnect between those Republican leaders and the normal Republicans on the ground. When, when Obama said there's no red America, there's no blue America, there's the United States America, he wasn't talking about Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mitch McConnell has chosen a side that is different. Um, and so I think that is a real cautionary tale for us now. It's not to say that Obama failed to get anything done. He did great things with the stimulus and with the Affordable Care Act and with banking reform. But- because of that dynamic in Washington that was just so infuriating for those of us who wanted to take full advantage at the time, because of that that dynamic, we didn't get support for unions. We didn't get a climate bill. We didn't get the, any of these democracy reforms that we're talking about now because the other side was dedicated to sinking them. So uh, I will say it's not just us um, making this argument now. I think the Obama years and what, what McConnell has done Basically, every day since Obama became president has been 
convincing for people, for many people on the sidelines. So there is still, though, a battle playing out in Washington, D.C. And on one side is our argument that you will have the majority, you should govern as if you have the majority. And on the other side, there are big power players who say things like, well, let's give Mitch McConnell a reason to bargain with us. Let's not move too fast. Let's try to strike some deals. And, you know, we need to make our side as convincing as possible. We are not going to have all the money. We're not going to have all of the traditional avenues of power. But what we do is have our indivisibles all across the country. And we got to use that to its full extent. Can I ask you about this dynamic? Because this sometimes keeps me up at night. It is so perplexing. And you mentioned this in the guide. We know that the Democrats ultimately wound up to go on to lose the majority in 2010. And McConnell has always known that if he blocks progress, voters will see gridlock on both sides and Democrats usually lose. Leah, any thoughts as to why you think this works in the GOP's favor and how we can counteract that? Yeah. So so I worked for a member of Congress who lost in 2010, um, got elected from a, a purple reddish district. Tom Periello. Uh, yeah. Tom Periello. Right. Exactly. Um, and he's you know, he's notable because he took the hard votes. He voted for health care. He voted for cap and trade, he voted for the stimulus, went back home and defended it. He did a lot better than, frankly, most of the other Democrats from similar districts who were voting against those things. And, you know, like stroking their chin and being like, I'm not for these budget deficits and blah, 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 et cetera. Um, he did still lose, though, because it was he'd won by 500 votes in 2008 so it was it was never going to be super close um that said one of the things that you saw was that when we couldn't get things done people kind of defaulted to their cultural preferences they defaulted to their identity um i remember very very deep like very personally um going door to door talking to people and i talked to one woman who was on unemployment it was going to run out soon she said she thought she was going to lose her house pretty shortly after that she had no idea what she was going to do and i said well, you know, Democrats are trying to extend unemployment benefits. So they want to make sure that you continue to get that. And she said, oh, well, I don't know if I'm in favor of that because there are some people who just take advantage of it. And I, you know, at the time I was like, oh my God, this woman is like, this is frankly, she's super racist. And she is thinking about this just in terms of like, who am I better than? But over time, as I thought about it more, you know, what I realized was we had held all the levers of power for two years and I was going to her and I was asking for her a vote and I was saying, if you elect us, we will continue to prefer to give you money, but we won't actually give you any money. It won't change your life. We can't promise anything different for the next two years than for the last two years. And like, you know, no wonder she was just voting her own identity and she was voting her, you know, those racial politics because we couldn't actually promise anything different. I mean, this it's not rocket science, y'all. Make people's lives better and then make sure that they know that you did it. Yeah. Run on that. It's that simple. I think even the good stuff that the Democrats passed in 2009, 2010 was either literally designed to not be noticed, things like a, a tax cut, so your 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 uh, your paycheck just got a little bit bigger, but you didn't know it was coming from the government, or it was things like the Affordable Care Act, which was great, but took several years to actually uh, get enacted. So people demonized it on the other side, and the people who were going to benefit from it in the future didn't get those benefits until after the 2010 election. Exactly. So by all means, pass all the democracy reforms we're talking about, but that's not the end of the story. Pass bills that make people's lives better before 2022, and then tell them, hey, we made your life better. Vote for us again, and we'll keep on making it better. It's not that it's not that complicated. And I think as Democrats, as nerds, as political wonks, we tend to like, we get into the details and we want to talk about the details of policy. It's not, it, it should not be that complicated. And if you're making that complicated, you're going to lose. Yeah. Get rid of food and debt. 
and expand the child tax credit and send people checks. And then they know those things happened under Democratic administration. It's And then that's how you get to victory. I think a lot of times, and you also mentioned this in the guide, we lose the, the, the thread when we start to focus on policy as opposed to policy outcomes, which is making people's lives better. And as, as you're saying very clearly, take credit for it. Um, so lesson number two uh, in the first section is to prepare to counter a grassroots conservative backlash. I don't know no. when you wrote this, but uh, in the summer. yeah, so we, uh, unfortunately in the summer. Yeah. OK, <laughs> so we knew that Obama's election gave rise to the Tea Party, but we know that today's conservative backlash is violent and white supremacist and dangerous and committed an ex- insurrection on our capital in which it's now becoming uh, increasingly clear in the Washington Post reporting that they were intending to kill uh, members of Congress. I'll just ask you a humongous and very important question. How do we, as as grassroots uh, indivisibles, how do we effectively counter something like this? Before before we get started, I just want to make sure to give credit to our full team. Um, so while we definitely had a hand in editing the guide and we um, wrote the introduction, the, the guide is the product of the strategy and the writing of our full policy team. It's gotcha. so brilliant. Yes. Page as well. Um, it's very much informed by our own experiences during this period, but it's also it's it's more than just a uh, us effort now, which is one of the awesome things about this. Thank you. Um, but um, in terms of countering a grassroots resistance, look, I think the first piece of it, you know, we go back to the 2008 to 2010 period. There was a period of time when Republicans were showing up and Democrats weren't. Um, and, you know, collectively you were hearing from the enraged opposition, you were not hearing from the people who thought things were going in the right direction and who were excited and who wanted more of it. Um, you, I can remember doing the call tallies and it was not, it was not going in the right direction. And so the first part of it is just continuing to stay engaged and making sure that even as members of Congress are sort of assessing if somebody's for, if somebody's against this, is somebody for it, that those tallies end up in the right place. Um, I think the other piece of this is, and it's a longer term piece, and we're just beginning to wrap our heads around it, is one of the things that's really changed is the information ecosystem, right? The level of disinformation that is circulating, the level of alternate reality. I want to be honest, some of this was always there. Like I remember trying to talk to my grandparents in 2010, and they were full on with some conspiracy theories around what was going on. but it's gotten so much worse. And so when we're thinking about communities that indivisibles are in and how we actually spread accurate, reliable information, um, I, I don't know if folks here were involved in the Truth Brigade effort over the summer or over this election season where we were trying to make sure that indivisibles were working to disseminate accurate information in response to uh, smears that were circulating on the Internet. We got to think about how do we counter not only um, the active shows of conservative grassroots, but the information that they're spreading and the ways that that populates our communities. And this is where my engagement question comes in. And you're you're touching on this already. Um it is much easier to keep engagement up when you have a common enemy. And I just candidly, do you worry about engagement staying as strong as we need it to be in order to do these democracy reforms without somebody like Trump in the picture? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I am encouraged by the by the signs we've seen so far. But the natural um, the natural natural trend in activism is you get involved in a big way. And then especially if there's a success activism naturally wanes over time. People, and even aside from having this big success that we've had building the trifecta, people have get jobs or new uh, or kids or they move or whatever. Life happens. 
and then people drop out. And I think one of the powers of Indivisible, as you know, is that we are not an individual-led activist movement. We are a group-led activist movement. That is the, the unique feature of Indivisible, that our power is in our groups, not just individuals. And the strongest groups, of course, are not just led by one person, but they have entire steering committees of people, as you know, that help sustain it and help grow it over time. They're, you're always going to be losing people. The question, are you always gaining new people. Um, and I think that is a, it's an existential crisis, not, not for Indivisible, but for the country right now, because I think we need this activism, not just through Indivisible, but through Indivisible and run for something and swing left and you name it. The groups on the ground who have built up, they need to keep on building up and they need to push for these things because if we don't get them now, if there's not a grassroots movement behind this legislation, instead you're going to get these wackadoodles with AR-15 showing up because they don't want DC to be a state. The other thing I would just add, you know, um, absolutely I worry about it, but one of the things that gives me hope is I feel like I have seen very clearly, and y'all are group leaders, you've seen this as well, we got involved as a movement because Donald Trump had gotten elected, but very quickly folks' activism went beyond that. And, you know, as I always say, it's not about Trump. Trump was a symptom of greater problems. Those problems are still around just because Trump is out of office, and folks know that. Um, People have been you know, I'm, I'm talking to folks who have run for office themselves. I'm talking to people who raise money for local candidates and help them get into office, who've taken on, you know, sanctuary city initiatives, who've taken on state politics, everything. We all know that this is not just, um, while it is easier to unite around one common enemy, there's also an advantage right now, right? Democrats no longer have a foil where they can say, oh, well, we would do those things, but we can't because of Trump. We can't because we don't control the Senate. Democrats can do what they want to do if they are willing to actually have the courage of their convictions. And it's our job to make sure that they do. And that is just as inspiring because now we can actually do stuff. Well, and that gets us to lesson number three, which is expect congressional Democrats to get cold feet, um, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure everybody uh, listening is expecting most of our Democrats to do precisely that. You say uh, Democrats in 2009 were concerned Concerned that legislative overreach would cost them the majority in 2010. See, this sounds familiar already. Like we're already starting to hear this talk. I'm like three or four days in. So make the case for why the opposite is true, why we need to go bolder in order to keep our majority in 2021. Yeah, I think uh, 2022 just, rather. I'm sorry. Right. It, th- this goes back to the earlier point we made that the way to win elections is to improve people's lives and then brag about improving people's lives. And if you immediately scale back what your aspirations are, if you give in to the obstruction from the other side, you won't have anything to run on. You will not be able to make a convincing argument. That's purely on the social and economic reform front. On the democracy front, on whether we have secure, safe, fair elections, which is the power of the Democrats to pass reforms to ensure that, if you don't do that this year, you're gonna run in 2022 having not made our elections secure and fair? My God, what are you thinking? It is an existential crisis for anybody who is pro-democracy to pass these reforms now. So uh, the, the problem that we face is that other side I mentioned, that, that the, the lobbyists, the, the corporatist groups who are out there in Washington, D.C., talking to the same people we're talking to, saying, no, 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 slow down, work with Mitch McConnell, work with Kevin McCarthy, don't don't do things if they object. Don't do things if the um, uh, if you're worried about a editorial in the Wall Street Journal. Pay attention to that instead and slow down. But we have made a strategic assessment. You can disagree with us if you want, but our strategic assessment is the Democrats should govern as if they have a majority because the Democrats have a majority. 
And so they are going to be accountable for what they get done in this period. And, you know, you you're, you're making the case for, you know, preserving democracy as being the most important thing that we can do as citizen activists right now. I can't think of anything that would be more impactful in terms of keeping engagement numbers up. I mean, if we really put it in those stark terms, I I think people will. I trust I have to trust that people will come around. Um and then the final lesson is, and you've been uh, uh, talking uh, about this uh, kind of around the edges, is go big, go fast, get it right. So in 2009, you write that Democrats thought that they would have more time to enact their legislative agenda, which just seems, you know, but by today's looking back, hindsight seems hopelessly naive. Can you give us some insight into why they thought that back then? I think it was I think it was naive. I, there's. Um... I remember just being rocked by this when it came out, but there were internal discussions from the Obama White House from early 2009, and it was him and his economic advisors discussing what size of stimulus to push for. And they ultimately artificially set uh, a limit below a trillion dollars, which was far below what economists were saying was necessary. And their logic at the time was, well, we can always go back to the well. We can always go back and and pass more stimulus if we need to down the line. We've got four years, or maybe even the pessimistic folks thought we've got two years. That is a fundamental misreading of how legislative progress happens. You go back over literally the last 100 years of Democratic trifectas, and you think, what is the legislative accomplishment of those legislative trifectas? They don't happen in the four years of the presidency. They don't even happen in the first two years of the Congress. They happen in the first year or maybe 14, 15 months of the of the presidency. That goes all the way back to Wilson in 1913, through Johnson in 1965, through Obama in 2009. So this fundamental misreading that political power is something you can put in the bank and take it out at your leisure, nah, not how it works. It is not something that you can just hold on to forever. You use it or you lose it. And I think one advantage I will just add there, I think you can you can talk about kind of the misjudgments that were made at the top. You can also talk about who were the deciding votes and um, what were you working with, right? A deciding vote was Joe Lieberman. A deciding vote was a set of uh, red state senators who are frankly, um, if you are, we're, we're annoyed by Joe Manchin sometimes these days, but he is a, a, the Joe Manchin who has lived through the Trump years is a major step forward compared to some of the people who they were having to persuade in order to get anything done back then with 60 votes. So I think one of the things that we have in our favor is we actually have better, uh, better key votes and key deciders right now that we really can apply pressure to and get something out of. And just to note, we were talking a 60 vote threshold then because the filibuster was still the ruling law of the land and that Democrats were unwilling to accept any changes to it. Now, Obama only had a filibuster-proof majority of 60 votes with really bad Democrats like Joe Lieberman being the tiebreaker for a few months. Um, So once he lost that, really his entire legislative agenda went down the tubes. And that is one of the reasons why if you ask Barack Obama now, and he has said this publicly, he will call the filibuster something that is a Jim Crow relic, something that makes the country literally ungovernable, his words. Um, and I think that has been persuasive to many people who are thinking about how we respond in this moment. You have a timeline in which you it's, it's an ideal timeline in which you lay out how we can get to uh, ending the filibuster. And, and we'll get to that in a second. But I will ask you something that we got a lot of questions about. I think people are fearful that that Biden or especially Chuck Schumer might 
uh, fall into this trap of, you know, the, the, the same sort of trap that Obama fell into uh, in, in his first term? Are either of you concerned? And, and if so, how might we encourage our Democratic senators, and we have two Democratic senators here in the state, to, 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 to move things along, to, to embolden uh, Biden and Schumer? It's a great question. Um, so first, I think one one thing that I'll say, um, the president talks a lot about unity, and I think it's good and appropriate to claim the high ground. I think it's good to talk about unity against white supremacy, unity against fascism, because those are, in fact, values that the majority of the country can and should be getting behind. It's indivisible against it's those It's indivisible, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, if you're going to talk about unity and then go in and fire all the hacks at the NLRB on the first day, that is great. I am totally down with that. Um, now, it's when you're actually having that factor into your strategy and you're building strategies based on the assumption of cooperation that that's going to be a challenge. And so I think what's really important for us is to keep up the demand for fast action, fast, big action, um, and just you know, be very clear. It's not about intentions. It's not about whether you can get together um, a, a bipartisan majority. Uh, people don't care which senators from a different state voted for your package. They care what it's going to do for their lives. And it's just our job to keep hammering that home to our electeds and not accept excuses. Let, uh, just as a very specific example right now that we're facing, uh, Biden put out a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package uh, he uh, has said that he wants to move forward with a without the filibuster reform, without reconciliation, which is a way of getting around the filibuster for this, and said wants to build um, towards 60 votes, getting Republican support. Republicans have pretty immediately come out and said, that's a non-starter. We're not for this package. You're going to have to water it down a whole bunch. So you've got two Democratic senators. And I think your message to those Democratic senators in this message is, or in this moment is, do not accept a watered-down package. Will you commit to, I, I would love a Republican to come on board with good policy. By all means, welcome them on board to come to good policy. But we're not going to make this policy worse so that we can call it bipartisan. Ask them to accept nothing less than the $1.9 trillion. And in fact, that $1.9 trillion deal should be a baseline, should be a baseline. Currently, it includes the $15 minimum wage. I think that's great. They should not shed that in order to get it through reconciliation or in order to get Republicans on board. They should pass the damn $15 minimum wage. They're in power. So do your senators support that right now? You've got two very powerful senators. Get them on the record supporting that. Yeah, there are a lot of lessons in here. I mean, we, we, we think about how if you go into negotiations asking for half a loaf, it's just going to get whittled down from there. So um, let's talk about where the rubber really meets the road and basically where we began our discussion, which is in Section 2. This is fixing our democracy. And I would like you to kind of give us your assessment of where we are at now, because we have seen the GOP basically out themselves as an anti-democratic party. Leah, how do you see the scope of the problem right now? Well, I, I link it to some of the challenges that we saw back in 2008, and obviously it goes back much further. I think what we've seen is an ideological sorting that's been going on, kicked off very much by the civil rights movement and the civil rights acts of the 1960s as the Republicans have become an increasingly um, conservative and ideologically right-wing 
and uh, party of white grievance, um, they have become, basically you've seen all of the factions that used to allow for some kind of compromise in Washington uh, sort themselves into two parties. So that's part of what's happened. There's also been a 40 year plan by billionaires in the Republican party with a very far right ideology to take over the levels of power and to use those to entrench their own power. And we see that everywhere. We see that at the state level, we see that at the local level, we see that federally, we see that in the courts. Um, we're, it, we are in a great moment right now. We are happy that we have won. We are happy we have a trifecta. We should not be under any illusions that that is a stable situation. Um, we're in a really rare window of opportunity. And frankly, they've been playing a much longer game and they came incredibly close to winning. And so if we don't actually uh, change the underlying conditions, then it's a roll of the dice next time, whether we're going to stay in power or whether we're going to get power ever again. Um, fundamentally, we're not, we're just fighting right now for the opportunity to create a level playing field, to create an inclusive democracy where actually everyone's vote counts. Um, and after that, that is how we achieve the things that we genuinely need, the things that we really need in this country. If anybody okay, is I, interested in hearing, I just I will just say very quickly, Ezra, that if anybody's interested in hearing more precisely about what Leah is talking about, I really recommend reading Ezra Klein's Why We're Polarized, because it goes into yes. such depth as to what Leah yeah. was saying. I'm sorry I interrupted, uh, Ezra. Please continue. Yeah. No, I was just and somebody mentioned Democracy in Chains, uh, which is a, a great book as well um, that goes over these issues and how democracies die as well. That all, all good reading. I, I was just going to make things a little bit starker. I think if you ask me right now, I think Republicans are on track to take the House in 2022. And I think Mitch McConnell has a good shot of becoming Senate Majority Leader in 2023. If Democrats do nothing, if our democracy is in the state that it currently is come those elections, I think that's what's going to happen. And the reason why I think that's going to happen is because Republicans have control of redistricting in a lot of states. They're going to use that to squeeze out more Republican districts and to entrench their power in the House. And they're using their power at the state level in places like Arizona and Georgia and Florida to prevent any kind of democratic gains, either in the House or the Senate. So passing things like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act to prevent the kind of voter suppression in Georgia that we've seen recently, passing things like H.R. 1, the For the People Act, which provides small dollar donor matching and requires independent redistricting commissions, passing things like D.C. statehood, which provides 700,000 Americans, mostly brown and black Americans with representation in the House and the Senate, is necessary not to empower the Democratic Party, but to empower the people of America who currently are not empowered. So I, I think uh, I am worried about 2022 right now. We are not on a glide path to, uh, to a permanent functioning democracy in this country. What we've won in November and then in January is not a democracy. We've won the opportunity to save this democracy. And the way we take advantage of that opportunity is by passing legislation, not sometime in the future, but now, right now. Well, so let's talk about how we get there, because you have some blueprints here. And one thing that you point out in this guide is it was eye opening for me. So H.R. 1 and H.R. 4, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, a lot of people assume this is going to be a done deal now that we have a trifecta. Uh, but you're not so sure. Uh, why not? Because uh, so think about how repeal of the Affordable Care Act went. Right. So during the entirety of the Obama era, after he lost his House majority, the Republicans immediately started passing legislation to repeal the Affordable Care Act. They did it literally dozens of times in the House. They did it in the Senate. They forced an Obama veto. Why were they able to do it under Obama? But as soon as they had the trifecta, they weren't able to do it. And the answer is Congress passes stuff all the time when they know it has no chance of becoming law. 
to signaling bills, right? The signaling bill, it's a message system. It's a way for them to gin up support in the base, but they know it's not going to actually happen and they're not going to deal with any repercussions. Now, I would love to say that's a one-sided problem. It's not. It applies to everybody in Congress. So yes, the House of Representatives passed H.R. 1, the For the People Act already. They passed D.C. statehood already. They passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Act already. That was in the last Congress when they didn't have the Senate and they didn't have the presidency. Now suddenly they're playing for keeps. And all of the concerns that some members might have about how is this going to affect my district? How is this going to affect my donors? How is this going to affect my political career? Those become more real. And so we have a slim majority in the House. We have an even slimmer majority in the Senate. If this stuff is going to get through, this is going to take people pushing on them and holding them accountable for actually getting it done in a way that actually Republicans weren't able to do to their own representatives back in 2017 when they tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And we've already heard whispers of certain moderates in swing districts, folks who got elected in 2018. Sorry, certain conservative Democrats in swing districts who got elected in 2018 off the hard work of indivisibles in those districts who are talking about, you know, can we weaken the small dollar donor provisions? Like, isn't that going too far, et cetera? And so it's going to be absolutely crucial that they understand that there really is a political price to be paid in terms of their own support if they're going to back off the commitments that they previously made. I mean, here's a total, totally plausible future scenario. The House of Representatives takes that re- uh brings up H.R. 1, the For the People Act. Members oppose the campaign finance reform provisions. Members oppose the redistricting provisions. That comes out. It gets weakened. It passes in the House. It goes to the Senate. Mitch McConnell filibusters. It dies on the Senate floor. That's a possible future scenario, and some people might even bet on it. The only way we avoid that scenario is by applying pressure to our members now, using things like the progressive voting block to make sure these bills are as strong as possible moving through the House, and then apply pressure to the Senate to make sure they actually get a vote. It's also very exciting to be talking about this with Washington State folks, because, you know, for for four years, you've been saying, hey, I've got a good Democrat. What do I do? And now our answer is, oh, my gosh, y'all, we need all hands on deck talking to these Democrats because they are the ones who have the power now. You have a section uh, about the different kinds of Democrats, and we have most of them. Uh, we have some Republicans, uh-huh. too. And so I, I want to get your thoughts on that in a second. But let's talk about the timeline that you have laid out to uh, get through the rest of Indivisible's agenda, which is court reform, D.C. statehood, and ending the filibuster. These right now seem to be non-starters with, uh, well, let's go ahead and call them conservative Democrats. Uh, new kingmaker Joe Manchin, who uh, everybody uh, wants to get airtime with, and also also Kirsten Cinema in Arizona. So uh, let's talk about this hypothetical timeline that you lay out in the guide where you feel that you can get movement on these things with people like Manchin and Cinema. How does it work? So first step, you got to pass it through the House. That, that is where we should be. It's Like I mentioned before, these have already passed the House before. So while it is not a foregone conclusion that we can get it through the House, and while it's not a foregone conclusion that we can get it through the House as strong as it is now or even stronger, that is a first step, most likely, that we are going to pass strong John Lewis Voting Rights Act, strong For the People Act, strong D.C. statehood bill through the House. That will then send it to the Senate. And Mitch McConnell will try to filibuster it. He will say, I am filibustering it. And so then this is when the choice presents itself, right? This is when the Democrats, including Manchin and Cinema and Coons and Bennett and the quote unquote institutionalists of the Senate, the people who don't want to rock the vote, they are going to face a choice. And we need to make this choice as clear as possible. You can choose between having the filibuster remain, giving Mitch McConnell his veto, 
or you can pass these democracy-saving pieces of legislation. That's it. And if that is the choice presented to them, I think we got a shot. I'm not saying we're going to win, but I think we've got a shot at actually getting this through. Because even if you are a conservative Democrat, if you are somebody who cares about our democracy, you're going to understand we're not going to give Mitch McConnell and the Sedition Caucus a veto over the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, a veto over democracy-saving legislation. Um, and so that requires a little bit of a leap of faith that in the end, when presented with those those uh, potential choices and when seeing the grassroots movement fighting for those things behind it, that our democratic representatives will make the right choice. That's the theory of change. I think I, I always like to say our theory of change is to make the right thing to do as easy and advantageous for people yes, as possible. Yes. Um, and that's where we are right now. Joe Manchin would like to keep his chairmanship, right? Um, Kristen Cinema would like to keep the support of the Arizona Indivisibles who were, went all out for her in 2018, even if they had issues with some of her politics. These are folks who have their own incentives and they also care about the ultimate outcomes for uh, their party for their own election, et cetera. We gotta stress the importance both of inclusive, accessible democracy for everyone. And we have to recognize that these are important for them. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, the 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 quickest way to a, a member of Congress's heart is through their their reelection or or your your, your senator. Uh, so the final section is called understanding your member of Congress. I alluded to this earlier, and understanding our power. You say that uh, uh, the best way to apply pressure is to know what kind of MOC your representative is. So, as I said, we have all kinds here. We have the the amazing Pramila Jayapal, who is head of CPAC. We have uh, uh, Susan Del Bene, who is head of the New Democrats. Um, on and on. What is what are the archetypes that we should know, and and what should be our approach in working with them? Great question. So this is key. This is key, right? So you have to understand you all are a constituent power group. That is what you are doing. You are applying constituent power to your representatives and representatives are like anything else. They respond to external stimuli. You just need to know what kind of stimuli is needed and what their constraints are, right? So if you've got a, if you've got somebody like Pramila Jayapal, she's a freaking leader in the house. She's one of the strongest allies in the entire house of representatives towards the, uh, with the indivisible movement. So she is there and she needs your support to use the power that she has as the head of the congressional progressive caucus. And she needs to know that you are watching and going to be pushing for her to use the power that she's got. Now, she's an ally who you can work with in order to help the Democrats in the House wield their power as well as they can. Now, if you're talking about a conservative Democrat, somebody who's the head of the new Democrats, you've got a different challenge. This Democrat is going to be pushing to water down legislation. He's going to be pushing to make deals with Kevin McCarthy. He's going to be pushing to slow things down and not overreach. And so with that Democrat, you want them to know, hey, we're watching you. We expect you to not slow down legislation. And we're going to be outside holding you accountable. It doesn't matter that you've got the word Democrat next to your name. If you're not with us, we're going to hold you accountable. And so it, it's worth just keeping in mind, especially for the, the the new Dems, the conservative Dems, that what they really, really want in this moment is to, to sail through to their next re-election. They don't want to rock the boat too much. They don't want to get in the news for being the target of, of angry uh, attacks from the other side. They want as little controversy as possible. So you have power by being legitimate local hours uh, actors because 
You can make sure there's controversy if they don't support what you want. You can make sure that there is a local press and that their neighbors know that they're standing in the way of progress. They don't want that. They want to get through without anybody noticing. So make sure that they know that you will notice. I think that the the key thing here is also that these these reforms that we were talking about, they are incredibly popular. Not not all of them and not in exactly the same ways, right? DC statehood, it takes more time to socialize with people sometimes, but like all of the small dollar donor reforms, all of the anti-gerrymandering, these are things that people like. Nobody likes corporate money outweighing people's voices in politics. Nobody likes the idea that their voice doesn't actually count. Um, This is not a hard set of things to sell to a broad ideological spectrum. It is Republicans who are in power, who are aware that this is going to damage their prospects, who are the ones who are so set against it. It's such a good point. We're not asking people to outlaw puppies and rainbows. We're asking people to... (laughs) We're asking people to get money out of politics. Like it, it couldn't be more popular. The thing we're asking people to vote for additional support for checks for people who are dealing with COVID right now. The, this is stuff that should be a no-brainer. If you've got a moderate dim, they by all means they should be shouting from every rooftop that we need to pass these things so that they have an easier time getting reelected. Well, I'm sure that people are taking copious notes right now. And of course, I can refer all of them to the guide. Let's get into some audience questions here. Um, Naomi with uh, Snohomish County Indivisible, I believe your question about uh, thoughts on the possibility of Supreme Court reform uh, got answered in the timeline question, unless there's something that that either you would like to to add to that. One note that uh, is also quite encouraging that uh, Joe Biden on the campaign trail agreed to a six-month commission to study whether or not the Supreme Court should be reformed, including expansion. We have talked about things like expansion, term limits, ethics, and transparency reforms. Uh, He has then more recently committed to that being part of his administrative action as president. So that I'm hopeful for that and more hopeful than I might otherwise be. I think the thing to look at Um, I look out for uh, over the course of the next few weeks and months are really damaging Supreme Court uh, decisions that could come out now that we have a 6-3 Republican appointed majority against us. I think if and when those bad decisions come out, you're going to see a lot more opportunity for action on that front. Uh, Scarlett Hollingsworth asks, what is the plan to hold our state representatives accountable who voted against certifying the election? Uh, This is very much a people power thing. And you have people uh, watching, listening right now from the fifth CD in Spokane, which is Kathy McMorris Rogers district. Uh, How do we hold her accountable here? Well, I think the tools, uh, you know, going to keep saying constituent power over and over again, but the tools are the same, right? Make sure people understand what happened. Make sure that it follows them around for the following two years. Make sure that they are paying a price in terms of being affiliated with something that is widely unpopular and in fact pretty unpopular even amongst Republicans, right? Earlier today, um, a a group of Texas indivisibles held a press conference around Ted Cruz, calling on Ted Cruz to resign. Now, nobody nobody thinks that Ted Cruz is going to be like overcome by a fit of conscience and resign, right? But the are about keeping it, keeping the sense that he should be ashamed, that he should, if he had sense of shame, be the kind of person who would resign over this, keeping that in the news, making that central to how people understand who he is. So I would say it's continual public pressure. Ultimately, we need to move to ensure that these folks are held accountable at the ballot box. The other thing is investigations need to be moving forward. Um, there are all kinds of suspicions floating around in Congress that there were folks on the inside who were helping the protesters. There needs to be a thorough investigation. It's part of the impeachment trial will be one piece of this. 
but there's going to need to be an entire, um, you know, just a thorough understanding of exactly who was doing what inside of the Capitol uh, to foster and encourage these folks. Yeah. Can I just know, Nick Morris Rogers uh, joined literally a majority of the House caucus. This is not an individual problem. It's a systemic problem. And to systemic problems, you need systemic solutions. So I, I think the 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 trap that we can't fall into is thinking, well, if we get Ted Cruz to resign, or if we get Holly to resign, or even if we impeach and convict Trump, that suddenly this this problem is over. The Republicans are responding, as I said earlier, to their external stimuli, right? They're responding to a basic need, which is they want to rise up in the ranks of the Republican Party and they want to win their next primary. That is what they are focused on. And they know that Donald Trump and the fascist wing of the party is ascendant. That is the ruling faction of the Republican Party right now. To the extent you can call the question of this division between the traditional conservatives of the Republican Party, the more libertarian wing, the more economic conservative wing, and the outright fascist wing, that is helpful. That is helpful. There is a great piece that I would recommend recommend people read that appeared uh, in the New York Times about a week ago by Timothy Snyder, the guy who wrote How Democ- Well, no, he wasn't How Democracies Die. Um, one, on one on political- tyranny. He wrote on tyranny. Yeah, on tyranny. That's right. He wrote on tyranny. Um, he he talked about the, the big lie, the big lie being that uh, Donald Trump actually won the election and the damage that that can do to our democracy. But the, the, the way the big lie survives is by these two factions of the Republican Party staying in coalition together. There's the one faction that is the fascist faction. That's the, the people who literally want to break the system. He calls them the breakers. And then there's the other faction that, you know, they're not fascist, but they want to maintain power. And so they go along with what the fascists say so that they can maintain their chairmanship, so that they can cut taxes for rich people. Kathy McMorris Rogers, I don't know if she's a fascist or if she's just going along with them, but to whatever extent you can call the question on that, you can make sure that she does not get credit for being a reasonable Republican because she makes nice speeches, but making clear that she has to make a choice. Is she with the fascists or is she against it? And so, yes, as Leah said, that could be We've seen in Texas editorials from the major papers calling on Ted Cruz to resign. Same thing uh, for Josh Hawley. Can you get your state papers to call that question? Can you get other local pressure so that she knows, yeah, the way to rise in the current Republican Party is by acting, playing nicey-nice with the fascists in her party. There's got to be a cost on the other side. How can you create that cost? It's a great question, and I think it's it's one that we should all be considering. We have four questions left. I'm going to try and get to all of them in the nine minutes that we have left here. So Jan Cox, hi, Mom. That's, uh, <laughs> that is my wonderful <laughs> mom who's watching today. So uh, she has a question about the Electoral College, and I think this sort of fits in with the whole uh, democracy picture, particularly when we talk about D.C. statehood and uh, sort of changing the playing field here in terms of representation. She says, if we can't change the Electoral College by constitutional amendment, should we focus on states ratifying the popular vote? So just background, what she's talking about here is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. It's my understanding, I think yeah. we've got 15 states in the District Columbia who are on board with this, they are now at 196 electoral votes. It's about 70 plus percent of the way there to the 270 that we need. Any thoughts on putting some of our focus on that in advance of 2024? Such a good question. So uh, interstate compact is, I think it's a brilliant way to get around the electoral college that doesn't require a constitutional amendment. As you said, you just need the number of um, electoral college votes 
um, states that make up a number of electoral uh, electoral college votes reaching 270 in order for this to function. Now, you are correct. We have 15 states plus D.C. that have passed this. If you will note, none of the states that voted for Trump have passed this yet. And so a fundamental challenge we face right now with this is that in order to get this through, we would need to pass this in not just um, uh, not just the, the states that have already passed it and some of the lower hanging fruits, but you would need to pass it in states that have Republican control of the state legislatures, right? They're never going to do that. They're never going to do that. So in fact, the solution for passing it is you got to pass democracy reforms that make those states winnable flip the state legislators, legislatures, and then pass the legislation. So if you want to get this through in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Georgia, in Arizona, which you're going to have to do in order for it to actually take effect, you got to first flip those state legislatures. I think that's possible, but not under the current regime that we've got, not how our democratic institutions currently work. That's why Things in HR1, things in the For the People Act, like independent redistricting committees, making uh, voter registration automatic, uh, uh, small dollar uh, uh, campaign uh, donation matches, things like that that will put into play these states that have not been put into play is so crucial for ultimately uh, winning success in that strategy. I'm a cynic. I would say we just need to win Texas once. Um, like better, better, win better the presidential panic. election and Republicans will reform this for us. Uh, yes, absolutely. Smart, smart point. Smart point. <laughs> That's a really, really good point. And we know that there's a great uh, ground game there. We know that you're both very familiar with the dynamics there. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, we had a question about diversity. We actually had a number of questions about why there was no mention of racial equity in the guide. So I'll just ask you, does racial equity figure into Indivisible's plans moving forward? And if so, how? A great question. And I would say, first of all, and I hope I explained, like said this in the right way as I was opening, um, our diagnosis of what is a like what our problem is in our democracy is very much founded on an understanding that white supremacy was has been the central organizing principle in politics in American history since its founding and right up until today, right? Um, the ideological sorting and polarization of our parties, the fact that you have a small minority of white people, white, white rich people who are trying to hold government together, the fact that they use race as um, the way that they divide and conquer, um, all of these things are so central to how we understand politics. And that's why very much the inclusive democracy diagnosis that we have and the solutions that we call for are about voting rights, which historically have been very much the tool that Republicans use to suppress black and brown voices about DC statehood, which is about a place that was disenfranchised because of, um, as it became a majority black uh, uh, city. These are all very much, um, I think it's important for us to keep front and center that these are about ensuring a more inclusive democracy in which there is a stronger and more equitable voice for black and brown folks in particular. Um, and it's important for us to think about that, especially as a group that you know represents a largely white and disproportionately college educated and more you know middle to upper income constituency. Not all, I wanna be clear, but um, certainly a, a, enough that we need to be conscious of it in our own activism. 
that's why we've centered um, and why we focus on some racial equity training as one of the, the key proponents and the key things that we do in our own trainings. Um, I understand that folks here are working on and digging down on that this year, and that is great. Um, that is why we really try to think about, you know, how are the solutions that we are advancing in any space, whether it's immigration, whether it's um, the COVID relief package, whether it's healthcare, whether it's economic, how are they informed by an understanding of racial equity so that we're not trying to do colorblind solutions to problems that actually have very di direct racial implications. So um, I, I guess I would say um, it's a really important point to hear that folks didn't read that into the guide because that really helps me understand that we need to do a better job in informing our messaging and making sure that people understand the foundation of, the, of our diagnosis as well. I have one last question for you, and it's it's kind of a big philosophical question, but you know I think about the work, and and I think about what it's going to take to strengthen uh, our not just political electoral democracy, but also the economic and social democracy reforms that we're also going to have to do to really make you know a, a democracy that works for everybody. And you know I think we're 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 all starkly aware of the fact that this our country has never really made good on the promises of its founding creed. And I want to believe that we have a shot right now. I'm wondering how you both see this moment in history. Leah, can, can I start with you? Absolutely. Um, I see this as a moment that is potentially transformational. I think that it is not uncommon for an era of when there's been a disastrous incumbent, when there's been scandal, when there's been corruption, when there's been widespread economic and personal devastation, when there's been the kinds of... Um, division incited by the incumbent that we saw with Trump. Um, it's not incumbent for that to be followed by an era of reform um, and of societal transformation, right? This is a moment where, granted, the margins are thinner than we hope to have, but we actually have the majority that is capable of acting. And, we're, and we could actually reshape a lot of society if we are prepared to do it and if we actually build the power to do it, or if we actually put that power to work in the coming months and years. And in doing so, um, we can reset the foundation so that we have that fair playing field going forward. And that's huge. Um, this is a pivotal moment. We have been fighting for four years to get this opportunity. And we either use it and we set the foundation of our democracy up so that we can actually continue to be a democracy in the coming years, or we lose it and we watch this continual slide into um, as, as our democracy doesn't work, as it doesn't deliver solutions, as people get increasingly cynical, as white supremacy continues to rise, we watch this slide into autocracy. Ezra, you have this wonderful anecdote that uh, is contained within the guide about people power and FDR. I wonder if that applies here. It, it absolutely does. And I just a plus one everything Leah said, but I, I do think about that. Um, that anecdote a lot, where FDR, of course, came in in 1933 with huge congressional majorities um, after the Hoover um, led us into the Great Depression and refused to do anything to address it. Um, and a labor leader uh, and civil rights leader comes into uh, FDR's office and says, congratulations, we were thrilled to be behind you. Now we have this policy request. And FDR responds, I am absolutely agree with you. Now make me do it make me do it. And I think that is exactly what we should be thinking right now. We should be proud of everything we've accomplished. We should be proud that we did what we could to fight back against the, the bigotry, the racism, the intolerance, and the um, greed of the Trump administration. And we should be proud that we've built up a democratic trifecta now. And we should understand that 
the burden and responsibility we now have is to ensure that our elected leaders govern the way we want them to govern. We should not expect that we got to the finish line back in November or back in January because of this trifecta. Um, now the fun part starts. Now the now the actual legislating can happen, and it's only going to happen, as Leah said, if we if we make it happen. And the alternative is scary, which makes this time really exciting. Uh, we are living through history right now. This is a momentous time, and we know it's going to move pretty darn quickly. Um, and so I, I hope everybody's excited and has their seatbelts on and is ready for the wild ride that's about to come. Well, we know what future the two of you are fighting for. And in that vein, before we let you go, there has been a request for a Zeke cameo. I don't know if he is down for his nap. Okay. All right. Well, I, I, what I think we should probably do when he arrives is everybody can unmute themselves for just a moment and we can ooh and awe. <gasps> there he is. Oh, my goodness, buddy. What's up, beautiful? Oh. <laughs> My thanks this week to Kat Pipkin, Julian Gievsky, Kevin Jones, Louise Pathé, and Robin Gittleman. And a huge thank you to our star senior regional organizer, Nina Musabi. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.